Chapter 50 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 50 Eating the God. Section 1 The Sacrament of First Fruits. We have now seen that the corn spirit is represented sometimes in human, sometimes in animal form, and that in both cases he is killed in the person of his representative and eaten sacramentally. To find examples of actually killing the human representative of the corn spirit, we had naturally to go to savage races, but the harvest suppers of our European peasants have furnished unmistakable examples of the sacramental eating of animals as representatives of the corn spirit. But further, as might have been anticipated, the new corn is itself eaten sacramentally, that is, as the body of the corn spirit. In Värmland, Sweden, the farmer's wife uses the grain of the last sheaf to bake a loaf in the shape of a little girl. This loaf is divided amongst the whole household and eaten by them. Here, the loaf represents the corn spirit conceived as a maiden, just as in Scotland the corn spirit is similarly conceived and represented by the last sheaf made up in the form of a woman and bearing the name of the maiden. As usual, the corn spirit is believed to reside in the last sheaf, and to eat a loaf made from the last sheaf is, therefore, to eat the corn spirit itself. Similarly, at La Palisse in France, a man made of dough is hung upon the fir tree which is carried on the last harvest wagon. The tree and the dough man are taken to the mayor's house and kept there till the vintage is over. Then the close of the harvest is celebrated by a feast at which the mayor breaks the dough man in pieces and gives the pieces to the people to eat. In these examples, the corn spirit is represented and eaten in human shape. In other cases, Though the new corn is not baked in loaves of human shape, still the solemn ceremonies with which it is eaten suffice to indicate that it is partaken of sacramentally, that is, as the body of the corn spirit. For example, the following ceremonies used to be observed by the Lithuanian peasants at eating the new corn. About the time of the autumn sowing, when all the corn had been got in and the threshing had begun, each farmer held a festival called Sabarios, that is, the mixing or throwing together. He took nine good handfuls of each kind of crop, wheat, barley, oats, flax, beans, lentils, and the rest, and each handful he divided into three parts. The twenty-seven portions of each grain were then thrown on a heap and all mixed together. The grain used had to be that which was first threshed and winnowed, and which had been set aside and kept for this purpose. A part of the grain thus mixed was employed to bake little loaves, one for each of the household. The rest was mixed with more barley or oats and made into beer. The first beer brewed from this mixture was for the drinking of the farmer, his wife, and children. The second brew was for the servants. The beer being ready, the farmer chose an evening when no stranger was expected. Then, he knelt down before the barrel of beer, drew a jugful of the liquor, and poured it on the bung of the barrel, saying, O fruitful earth, make rye and barley and all kinds of corn to flourish. Next, he took the jug to the parlor where his wife and children awaited him. On the floor of the parlor lay bound a black or white or speckled, not a red, cock and a hen of the same color and of the same brood, which must have been hatched within the year. Then the farmer knelt down with the jug in his hand and thanked God for the harvest and prayed for a good crop next year. Next, all lifted up their hands and said, O God, and thou, O earth, we give you this cock and hen as a free will offering. With that, the farmer killed the fowls with the blows of a wooden spoon, for he might not cut their heads off. After the first prayer and after killing each of the birds, he poured out a third of the beer. Then his wife boiled the fowls in a new pot which had never been used before. After that, a bushel was set, bottom upwards on the floor, and on it were placed the little loaves mentioned above and the boiled fowls. Next, the new beer was fetched, 
together with a ladle and three mugs, none of which was used except on this occasion. When the farmer had ladled the beer into the mugs, the family knelt down round the bushel. The father then uttered a prayer and drank off the three mugs of beer. The rest followed his example. Then the loaves and the flesh of the fowls were eaten, after which the beer went round again till everyone had emptied each of the three mugs nine times. None of the food should remain over, but if anything did happen to be left, it was consumed next morning with the same ceremonies. The bones were given to the dog to eat, and if he did not eat them all up, the remains were buried under the dung in the cattle stall. This ceremony was observed at the beginning of December. On the day on which it took place, no bad word might be spoken. Such was the custom about two hundred years or more ago. At the present-day Lithuania, when new potatoes or loaves made from the new corn are eaten, all the people at table pull each other's hair. The meaning of this last custom is obscure, but a similar custom was certainly observed by the heathen Lithuanians at their solemn sacrifices. Many of the Estonians on the island of Ossel will not eat bread baked of the new corn till they have first taken a bite at a piece of iron. The iron is here plainly a charm, intended to render harmless the spirit that is in the corn. In Sutherlandshire at the present day, when the new potatoes are dug, all the family must taste them, otherwise, quote, the spirits in them, the potatoes, take offense, and the potatoes would not keep, close quote. In one part of Yorkshire, it is still customary for the clergyman to cut the first corn, and my informant believes that the corn so cut is used to make the communion bread. If the latter part of the custom is correctly reported, and analogy is all in its favor, it shows how the Christian communion has absorbed within itself a sacrament which is doubtless far older than Christianity. The Aino, or Ainu of Japan, are said to distinguish various kinds of millet as male and female respectively, and these kinds, taken together, are called, quote, the divine husband and wife cereal. Therefore, before millet is pounded and made into cakes for general eating, the old men have a few made for themselves first, to worship. When they are ready to pray to them very earnestly and say, O thou cereal deity, we worship thee. Thou hast grown very well this year and thy flavor will be sweet. Thou art good. The goddess of fire will be glad, and we shall rejoice greatly. O thou God, O thou divine cereal, do thou nourish the people. I now partake of thee. I worship thee, and give thee thanks. After having thus prayed, they, the worshippers, take a cake and eat it, and from this time the people may all partake of the new millet. And so, with many gestures of homage and words of prayer, this kind of food is dedicated to the well-being of the Ainu. No doubt, the cereal offering is regarded as a tribute paid to a god, but that god is no other than the seed itself, and it is only a god in so far as it is beneficial to the human body. At the close of the rice harvest in the East Indian island of Buru, each clan meets at a common sacramental meal, to which every member of the clan is bound to contribute a little of the new rice. This meal is called Eating the Soul of the Rice, a name which clearly indicates the sacramental character of the repast. Some of the rice is also set apart and offered to the spirits. Amongst the alfurs of Minihasa in Celebes, the priest sows the first rice seed, and plucks the first ripe rice in each field. This rice he roasts and grinds into meal, and gives some of it to each of the household. Shortly before the rice harvest, in Boland Mongando, another district of Celebes, an offering is made of a small pig or a fowl. Then the priest plucks a little rice, first on his own field and next on those of his neighbors. All the rice thus plucked by him he dries along with his own, and then gives it back to the respective owners, who have it ground and boiled. When it is boiled, the women take it back with an egg to the priest, who offers the egg in sacrifice and returns the rice to the women. 
of this rice every member of the family down to the youngest child must partake after this ceremony everyone is free to get in his rice amongst the burghers or bedagas a tribe of the nilgari hills in southern india the first handful of seed is sown and the first sheaf reaped by a kurambar a man of a different tribe and members of which the burghers regard as sorcerers the grain contained in the first sheaf quote, is that day reduced to meal made into cakes and being offered as a first fruit oblation is together with the remainder of the sacrificed animal partaken of by the burgher and the whole of his family as the meat of a federal offering and sacrifice among the hindus of southern india the eating of the new rice is the occasion of a family festival called pongal the new rice is boiled in a new pot on a fire which is kindled at noon on the day when according to hindu astrologers the sun enters the tropic of capricorn the boiling of the pot is watched with great anxiety by the whole family for as the milk boils so will the coming year be if the milk boils rapidly the year will be prosperous but it will be the reverse if the milk boils slowly some of the new boiled rice is offered to the image of ganesa then every one partakes of it in some parts of northern india the festival of the new crop is known as neban that is new grain when the crop is ripe the owner takes the omens goes to the field plucks five or six ears of barley in the spring crop and one of the millets in the autumn harvest this is brought home parched and mixed with coarse sugar butter and curds some of it is thrown on the fire in the name of the village gods and deceased ancestors the rest is eaten by the family the ceremony of eating the new yams at onicha on the niger is thus described Quote, each headman brought out six yams and cut down young branches of palm leaves and placed them before his gate roasted three of the yams and got some kola nuts and fish after the yam is roasted the libya or country doctor takes the yam scrapes it into a sort of meal and divides it into halves he then takes one piece and places it on the lips of the person who is going to eat the new yam the eater then blows up the steam from the hot yam and afterwards pokes the hole into his mouth and says i thank god for being permitted to eat the new yam he then begins to chew it heartily with fish likewise among the nandi of british east africa when the ulicine grain is ripening in autumn every woman who owns a cornfield goes out into it with her daughters and they all pluck some of the ripe grain each of the women then fixes one grain in her necklace and chews another which she rubs on her forehead throat and breast no mark of joy escapes them sorrowfully they cut a basketful of the new corn and carrying it home place it in the loft dry as the ceiling is of wickerwork a good deal of the grain drops through the crevasses and falls into the fire where it explodes with a crackling noise the people make no attempt to prevent this waste for they regard the crackling of the grain in the fire as a sign that the souls of the dead are partaking of it a few days later porridge is made from the new grain and is served up with milk at the evening meal all the members of the family take some of the porridge and dab it on the walls and roofs of the huts also they put a little in their mouths and spit it out towards the east and on the outside of the huts then holding up some of the grain in his hand the head of the family prays to God for health and strength, and likewise for milk, and everybody present repeats the words of the prayer after him. Among the Kafres of Natal and Zululand, no one may eat of the new fruits till after a festival which marks the beginning of the Kafre year and falls at the end of December or the beginning of January. All the people assemble at the king's kraal, where they feast and dance. Before they separate, the dedication of the people takes place various fruits of the earth as corn mealies and pumpkins mixed with the flesh of a sacrificed animal and with medicine are boiled in great pots and a little of this food is placed in each man's mouth by the king himself after thus partaking of the sanctified fruits a man is himself sanctified for the whole year and may immediately get in his crops 
it is believed that if any man were to partake of the new fruits before the festival he would die if he were detected he would be put to death or at least all his cattle would be taken from him the holiness of the new fruits is well marked by the rule that they must be cooked in a special pot which is used only for this purpose and on a new fire kindled by a magician through the friction of two sticks which are called husband and wife among the Bekuanas, it is a rule that before they partake of the new crops they must purify themselves the purification takes place at the commencement of the new year on a day in january which is fixed by the chief it begins in the great kraal of the tribe where all the adult males assemble each of them takes in his hand leaves of a gourd called by the natives letrotse described as something between a pumpkin and a vegetable marrow and having crushed the leaves he anoints with the expressed juice his big toes and his navel many people indeed apply the juice to all the joints of their body but the better informed say that this is a vulgar departure from ancient custom after this ceremony in the great kraal every man goes home to his own kraal assembles all the members of his family men women and children and smears them all with the juice of the letrotse leaves some of the leaves are also pounded mixed with milk in a large wooden dish and given to the dogs to lap up then the porridge plate of each member of the family is rubbed with the letrotse leaves when this purification has been completed but not before the people are free to eat of the new crops the bororo indians of brazil think it would be certain death to eat the new maize before it has been blessed by the medicine man the ceremony of blessing it is as follows the half-ripe husk is washed and placed before the medicine man who by dancing and singing for several hours and by incessant smoking works himself up into a state of ecstasy whereupon he bites into the husk trembling in every limb and uttering shrieks from time to time a similar ceremony is performed whenever a large animal or a large fish is killed the bororo are firmly persuaded that were any man to touch unconsecrated maize or meat before the ceremony had been completed he and his whole tribe would perish amongst the creek indians of north america the busk or festival of first fruits was the chief ceremony of the year it was held in july or august when the corn was ripe and marked the end of the old year and the beginning of the new one before it took place none of the indians would eat or even handle any part of the new harvest sometimes each town had its own busk sometimes several towns united to hold one in common before celebrating the busk the people provided themselves with new clothes and new household utensils and furnitures they collected their old clothes and rubbish together with all the remaining grain and their old provisions cast them together in one common heap and consumed them with fire as a preparation for the ceremony all the fires in the village were extinguished and the ashes swept clean away in particular the hearth or altar of the temple was dug up and the ashes carried out then the chief priest put some roots of the button snake plant with some green tobacco leaves and a little of the new fruits at the bottom of the fireplace which he afterwards commanded to be covered up with white clay and wetted over with clean water a thick arbor of green branches of young trees was then made over the altar meanwhile the women at home were cleaning out their houses renewing the old hearths and scouring all the cooking vessels that they might be ready to receive the new fire and the new fruits the public or sacred square was carefully swept of even the smallest crumbs of previous feasts quote, for fear of polluting the first fruit offerings close quote. also every vessel that had contained or had been used about any food during the expiring year was removed from the temple before sunset then all the men who were not known to have violated the law of the first fruit offering and that of marriage during the year were summoned by a crier to enter the holy square and observe a solemn fast but the women except six old ones the children and all who had not attained the rank of warriors were forbidden to enter the square sentinels were also posted at the corners of the square to keep out all persons deemed impure and all animals a strict fast was then observed for two nights and a day the devotees drinking a bitter concoction of button snake root 
quote, in order to vomit and purge their sinful bodies, close quote. That the people outside the square might also be purified, one of the old men laid down a quantity of green tobacco at a corner of the square. This was carried off by an old woman who distributed to the people without, who chewed and swallowed it, quote, in order to afflict their souls, close quote. During this general fast, the women, children, and men of weak constitution were allowed to eat after midday, but not before. On the morning when the fast ended, the women brought a quantity of the old year's food to be outside of the sacred square. These provisions were then fetched in and set before the famished multitude, but all traces of them had to be removed before noon. When the sun was declining from the meridian, all the people were commanded by the voice of a crier to stay within doors, to do no bad act, and to be sure to extinguish and throw away every spark of the old fire. Universal silence now reigned. Then the high priest made the new fire by the friction of two pieces of wood, and placed it on the altar under the green arbor. This new fire was believed to atone for all past crimes except murder. Next, a basket of new fruits was brought. The high priest took a little of each sort of fruit, rubbed it with bear's oil, and offered it, together with some flesh, quote, to the bountiful Holy Spirit of fire as a first-fruit offering and an annual oblation for sin, close quote. He also consecrated the sacred emetics, the button snake root and the casina or black drink, by pouring a little of them into the fire. The persons who had remained outside now approached, without entering, the sacred square, and the chief priest thereupon made a speech, exhorting the people to observe their old rites and customs, announcing that the new divine fire had purged away the sins of the past year, and earnestly warning the women that, if any of them had not extinguished the old fire, or had contracted any impurity, they must forthwith depart, quote, lest the divine fire should spoil both them and the people, close quote. Some of the new fire was then set down outside the holy square. The women carried it home joyfully and laid it on their unpolluted hearths. When several towns had united to celebrate the festival, the new fire might thus be carried for several miles. The new fruits were then dressed on the new fires and eaten with bear's oil, which was deemed indispensable. At one point of the festival, the men rubbed the new corn between their hands, then on their faces and breasts. During the festival which followed, the warriors, dressed in their wild martial array, their heads covered with white down and carrying white feathers in their hands, danced round the sacred arbor, under which burned the new fire. The ceremonies lasted eight days, during which the strictest countenance was practiced. Towards the conclusion of the festival, the warriors fought a mock battle. Then the men and women together, in three circles, danced round the sacred fire. Lastly, all the people smeared themselves with white clay and bathed in running water. They came out of the water, believing that no evil could now befall them for what they had done amiss in the past. So they departed in joy and peace. To this day also, the remnant of the Seminole Indians of Florida, a people of the same stock as the Creeks, hold an annual purification and festival called the Green Corn Dance, at which the new corn is eaten. On the evening of the first day of the festival, they quaff a nauseous black drink, as it is called, which acts both as an enemic and a purgative. They believe that he who does not drink of this liquor cannot safely eat the new green corn, and besides that he will be sick at some time in the year. While the liquor is being drunk, the dancing begins, and the medicine men join in. Next day they eat of the green corn. The following day they fast, probably from fear of polluting the sacred food in their stomachs by contact with common food. But the third day they hold a great feast. Even tribes which do not till the ground sometimes observe analogous ceremonies when they gather the first wild fruits or dig the first roots of the season. Thus, among the Salish and the Tina Indians of Northwest America, quote, before the young people eat the berries or roots of the season, they always addressed the fruit or plant and begged for its favor and aid. In some tribes, 
regular first-fruit ceremonies were annually held at the time of picking the wild fruit or gathering the roots, and also among the salmonating tribes when the run of the sockeye salmon began. These ceremonies were not so much thanksgivings as performances to ensure a plentiful crop or supply of the particular object desired. For, if they were not properly and reverently carried out, there was danger of giving offence to the spirits of the objects, of being deprived of them. For example, these Indians are fond of the young shoots or suckers of the wild raspberry, and they observe a solemn ceremony of eating the first of them in season. The shoots are cooked in a new pot. The people assemble and stand in a great circle with closed eyes, while the presiding chief or medicine man invokes the spirit of the plant, begging that it will be propitious to them and grant them a good supply of suckers. After this, part of the ceremony is over. The cooked suckers are handed to the presiding officer in a newly carved dish, and a small portion is given to each person present who reverently and decorously eats it. The Thompson Indians of British Columbia cook and eat the sunflower root Balsimorhiza sagitata, but they used to regard it as a mysterious being and observed a number of taboos in connection with it. For example, women who were engaged in digging or cooking the root must practice continence, and no man might come near the oven while the women were baking the root. When young men ate the first berries, roots, or other products of the season, they addressed a prayer to the sunflower root as follows. Quote, I inform thee that I intend to eat thee. Mayest thou always help me to ascend, so that I may always be able to reach the tops of the mountains, and may I never be clumsy. I ask this from thee, sunflower root. Thou art the greatest of all in mystery. Close quote. To omit this prayer would make the eater lazy and cause him to sleep long in the morning. These customs of the Thompson and other Indian tribes of the Northwest America are instructive because they clearly indicate the motive, or at least one of the motives, which underlies the ceremonies observed in eating the first fruits of the season. That motive, in the case of these Indians, is simply a belief that the plant itself is animated by a conscious and more or less powerful spirit, who must be propitiated before the people can safely partake of the fruits or roots which are supposed to be part of his body. Now, if this is true of wild fruits and roots, we may infer with some probability that it is also true of cultivated fruits and roots, such as yams, and in particular that it holds good of the cereals such as wheat, barley, oats, rice, and maize. In all cases, it seems reasonable to infer that the scruples which savages manifest at eating the first fruits of any crop, and the ceremonies which they observe before they overcome their scruples, are due, at least in large measure, to a notion that the plant or tree is animated by a spirit or even a deity, whose leave must be obtained, or whose favor must be sought, before it is possible to partake with safety of the new crop. This, indeed, is plainly affirmed of the Aino. They call the millet the divine cereal, the cereal deity, and they pray to and worship him before they will eat of the cakes made from the new millet. And even where the indwelling divinity of the new fruits is not expressly affirmed, it appears to be implied both by the solemn preparations made for eating them and by the danger supposed to be incurred by persons who ventured to partake of them without observing the prescribed ritual. In all such cases, accordingly, we may not improperly describe the eating of the new fruits as a sacrament or communion with a deity, or at all events with a powerful spirit. Among the usages which point to this conclusion are the custom of employing either new or specially reserved vessels to hold the new fruits and the practice of purifying the persons of the communicants, before it is lawful to engage in the solemn act of communion with the divinity. Of all the modes of purification adopted on these occasions, none perhaps brings out the sacramental virtue of the rite so clearly as the Greek and Seminole practice 
of taking a purgative before swallowing the new corn. The intention is thereby to prevent the sacred food from being polluted by contact with common food in the stomach of the eater. For the same reason Catholics partake of the Eucharist fasting, and among the pastoral Maasai of eastern Africa, the young warriors, who live on meat and milk exclusively, are obliged to eat nothing but milk for so many days, and then nothing but meat for so many more. And before they pass from the one food to the other, they must make sure that none of the old food remains in their stomachs. This they do by swallowing a very powerful purgative and emetic. In some of the festivals which we have examined, the sacrament of firstfruits is combined with a sacrifice or presentation of them to gods or spirits, and in course of time, the sacrifice of firstfruits tends to throw the sacrament into the shade, if not to supersede it. The mere fact of offering the firstfruits to the gods or spirits comes now to be thought a sufficient preparation for eating the new corn. The higher powers having received their share, man is free to enjoy the rest. This mode of viewing the new fruits implies that they are regarded no longer as themselves, instinct with divine life, but merely as a gift bestowed by the gods upon man, who is bound to express his gratitude and homage to his divine benefactors by returning to them a portion of their bounty. Section 2. Eating the God Among the Aztecs The custom of eating bread sacramentally as the body of a god was practiced by the Aztecs before the discovery and conquest of Mexico by the Spaniards. Twice a year, in May and December, an image of the great Mexican god Huitzilopochtli, or Huitzilopochtli, was made of dough, then broken in pieces, and solemnly eaten by his worshippers. The May ceremony is thus described by the historian Acosta. Quote, the Mexicans in the month of May made their principal feast to their god Vitzilopuzli, and two days before this feast, the virgins whereof I have spoken, that which were shut up and secluded in the same temple, and were, as it were, religious women, did mingle a quantity of the seed of beets with roasted maize, and then they did mold it with honey, making an idol of that paste in bigness like to that of wood, putting instead of eyes grains of green glass, of blue or white, and for teeth grains of maize set forth with all the ornament and furniture that I have said. This being finished, all the noblemen came and brought it an exquisite and rich garment, like unto that of the idol, wherewith they did attire it. Being thus clad and decked, they did set it in an azure chair and in a litter to carry it on their shoulders. The morning of this feast being come, an hour before day, all the maidens came forth attired in white, with new ornaments, that which that day were called the sisters of their god Vitzilopuzli. They came crowned with garlands of maize roasted and parched, being like unto Asahare, or the flower of orange. And about their necks they had great chains of the same, which went baldric-wise under their left arm. Their cheeks were dyed with vermilion, their arms from the elbow to the wrist were covered with red parrot's feathers. Young men, dressed in red robes, and crowned like the virgins with maize, then carried the idol in its litter to the foot of the great pyramid-shaped temple, up the steep and narrow steps of which it was drawn to the music of flutes, trumpets, cornets, and drums. Quote, While they mounted up the idol, all the people stood in the court with much reverence and fear, being mounted to the top, and that they had placed it in a little lodge of roses, which they held ready. Presently came the young men, which strewed many flowers of sundry kinds, wherewith they filled the temple both within and without. This done, all the virgins came out of their convent, bringing pieces of paste compounded of beets and roasted maize, which was of the same paste whereof their idol was made and compounded, and they were of the fashion of great bones. They delivered them to the young men, who carried them up and laid them at the idol's feet, wherewith they filled the whole place that it could receive no more. They called these morsels of paste 
the flesh and bones of Vitsiluputsli. Having laid abroad these bones, presently came all the ancients of the temple, priests, Levites, and all the rest of the ministers, according to their dignities and antiquities. For herein there was a strict order amongst them, one after another, with their veils of diverse colors and works, every one according to his dignity and office, having garlands upon their heads and chains of flowers about their necks. After them came their gods and goddesses whom they worshipped, of diverse figures, attired in the same livery, then putting themselves in order about those morsels and pieces of paste, they used certain ceremonies with singing and dancing. By means whereof they were blessed and consecrated for the flesh and bones of this idol. This ceremony and blessing, whereby they were taken for the flesh and bones of the idol, being ended, they honored those pieces in the same sort as their god. All the city came to this goodly spectacle, and there was a commandment very strictly observed throughout all the land that the day of the feast of the idol of Vitsiluputsli they should eat no other meat but this paste with honey whereof the idol was made, and this should be eaten at the point of day, and they should drink no water nor any other thing till afternoon. They held it for an ill sign, yea, for sacrilege to do the contrary. But after the ceremonies ended, it was lawful for them to eat anything. During the time of the ceremony, they hid the water from their little children, admonishing all such as had the use of reason not to drink any water, which, if they did, the anger of God would come upon them, and they should die, which they did observe very carefully and strictly. The ceremonies, dancing, and sacrifice ended, they went to unclothe themselves, and the priests and superiors of the temple took the idol of paste, which they spoiled of all the ornaments it had, and made many pieces, as well of the idol itself, as of the truncheons which they consecrated. And then they gave them to the people in manner of a communion, beginning with the greater, and continuing unto the rest, both men, women, and little children, who received it with such tears, fear, and reverence, as it was an admirable thing, saying that they did eat the flesh and bones of God, wherewith they were grieved, such as had any sick folks demanded thereof for them, and carried it with great reverence and veneration. From this interesting passage, we learn that the ancient Mexicans, even before the arrival of Christian missionaries, were fully acquainted with the doctrine of transubstantiation, and acted upon it in the solemn rites of their religion. They believed that by consecrating bread, their priests could turn it into the very body of their god, so that all who thereupon partook of the consecrated bread entered into a mystic communion with the deity by receiving a portion of his divine substance into themselves. The doctrine of transubstantiation, or the magical conversion of bread into flesh, was also familiar to the Aryans of ancient India, long before the spread and even the rise of Christianity. The Brahmans taught that the rice cakes offered in sacrifice were substitutes for human beings, and that they were actually converted into the real bodies of men by the manipulation of the priest. We read that, quote, When it, the rice cake, still consists of rice meal, it is the hair. When he pours water on it, it becomes skin. When he mixes it, it becomes flesh, for then it becomes consistent, and consistent also is the flesh. When it is baked, it becomes bone, for then it becomes somewhat hard, and hard is the bone. And when he is about to take it off the fire, and sprinkles it with butter, he changes it into marrow. This is the completeness which they call the five-fold animal sacrifice. Now, too, we can perfectly understand why, on the day of their solemn communion with the deity, the Mexicans refused to eat any other food than the consecrated bread which they revered as the very flesh and bones of their god, and why up till noon they might drink nothing at all, not even water. They feared, no doubt, to defile the portion of God in their stomachs by contact with common things. A similar pious fear led the Creek and Seminole Indians, as we saw, to adopt the more thorough-going expedient of rinsing out their bodies by a strong purgative 
before they dared to partake of the sacrament of firstfruits. At the festival of the winter solstice in December, the Aztecs killed their god Huitzilopochtli in effigy first, and ate him afterwards. As a preparation for this solemn ceremony, an image of the deity in the likeness of a man was fashioned out of seeds of various sorts, which were kneaded into a dough with the blood of children. The bones of the god were represented by pieces of acacia wood. This image was placed on the chief altar of the temple, and on the day of the festival the king offered incense to it. Early next day it was taken down and set on its feet in a great hall. Then a priest, who bore the name and acted the part of the god Quetzalcoatl, took a flint-tipped dart and hurled it into the breast of the dough image, piercing it through and through. This was called killing the god Huitzilopochtli, so that his body might be eaten. One of the priests cut out the heart of the image and gave it to the king to eat. The rest of the image was divided into minute pieces, of which every man, great and small, down to the male children, even in the cradle, receive one to eat. But no woman might taste a morsel. The ceremony was called Pio Coalo, that is, God is eaten. At another festival, the Mexicans made little images, like men, which stood for the cloud-capped mountains. These images were molded of a paste of various seeds and were dressed in paper ornaments. Some people fashioned five, others ten, others as many as fifteen of them. Having been made, they were placed in the oratory of each house and worshipped. Four times in the course of the night, offerings of food were brought to them in tiny vessels, and people sang and played the flute before them through all the hours of darkness. At break of day, the priests stabbed the images with a weaver's instrument, cut off their heads, and tore out their hearts, which they presented to the master of the house on a green saucer. The bodies of the images were then eaten by all the family, especially by the servants, quote, in order that by eating them they might be preserved from certain distempers to which those persons who were negligent of worship to those deities conceived themselves to be subject. Close quote. Section 3. Many Many at Arikia. We are now able to suggest an explanation of the proverb, There are many many at Arikia. Certain loaves made in the shape of men were called by the Romans mane, and it appears that this kind of loaf was especially made at Arikia. Now mania, the name of one of these loaves, was also the name of the mother or grandmother of ghosts to whom woolen effigies of men and women were dedicated at the festival of the Compitalia. These effigies were hung at the doors of all the houses in Rome. One effigy was hung up for every free person in the house, and one effigy of a different kind for every slave. The reason was that on this day the ghosts of the dead were believed to be going about, and it was hoped that, either out of good nature or through simple inadvertence, they would carry off the effigies at the door instead of the living people in the house. According to tradition, these woolen figures were substitutes for a former custom of sacrificing human beings. Upon data so fragmentary and uncertain, it is impossible to build with confidence. But it seems worth suggesting that the loaves in human form, which appear to have been baked at Arikia, were sacramental bread, and that in the old days, when the divine king of the wood was annually slain, loaves were made in his image, like the paste figures of the gods in Mexico, and were eaten sacramentally by his worshippers. The Mexican sacraments, in honor of Huitzilopochtli, were also accompanied by the sacrifice of human victims. The tradition that the founder of the sacred grove at Arikia was a man named Manius, from whom many many were descended, would thus be an etymological myth invented to explain the name Mane as applied to these sacramental loaves. A dim recollection of the original connection of the loaves with human sacrifices may perhaps be traced in the story that the effigies dedicated to Mania at the Compitolia 
were substitutes for human victims. The story itself, however, is probably devoid of foundation, since the practice of putting up dummies to divert the attention of ghosts or demons from living people is not uncommon. For example, the Tibetans stand in fear of innumerable earth demons, all of whom are under the authority of old mother Konma. This goddess, who may be compared to the Roman Mania, the mother or grandmother of ghosts, is dressed in golden yellow robes, holds a golden noose in her hand, and rides on a ram. In order to bar the dwelling house against the foul fiends, of whom old mother Konma is mistress, an elaborate structure, somewhat resembling a chandelier, is fixed above the door on the outside of the house. It contains a ram skull, a variety of precious objects, such as gold leaf, silver, and turquoise, also some dry food, such as rice, wheat, and pulse, and finally images or pictures of a man, a woman, and a house. Quote, the object of these figures of a man, wife, and house is to deceive the demons, should they still come in spite of this offering, and to mislead them into the belief that the foregoing pictures are the inmates of the house, so that they will wreak their wrath on these bits of wood, and to save the real human occupants. When all is ready, a priest prays to old mother Konma that she would be pleased to accept these dainty offerings and to close the open doors of the earth in order that the demons may not come forth to infest and injure the household. Again, effigies are often employed as a means of preventing or curing sickness. The demons of disease either mistake the effigies for living people or are persuaded or compelled to enter them leaving the real men and women well and whole. Thus, the Alfors of Menahasa in Celebus will sometimes transport a sick man to another house, while they leave on his bed a dummy made up of a pillow and clothes. This dummy the demon is supposed to mistake for the sick man, who consequently recovers. Cure or prevention of this sort seems to find a special favor with the natives of Borneo. Thus, when an epidemic is raging among them, the Diaks of Kachiongao River set up wooden images at their doors in the hope that the demons of the plague may be deluded into carrying off the effigies instead of the people. Among the Olo Nyaju of Borneo, when a sick man is supposed to be suffering from the assaults of a ghost, puppets of dough or rice meal are made and thrown under the house as substitutes for the patient, who thus rids himself of the ghost. In certain of the western districts of Borneo, if a man is taken suddenly and violently sick, the physician, who in this part of the world is generally an old woman, fashions a wooden image and brings it seven times into contact with the sufferer's head, while she says, quote, This image serves to take the place of the sick man. Sickness pass over into the image. Close quote. Then, with some rice, salt, and tobacco in a little basket, the substitute is carried to the spot where the evil spirit is supposed to have entered into the man. There it is set upright on the ground, after the physician has invoked the spirit as follows, quote, O devil, here is an image which stands instead of the sick man. Release the soul of the sick man and plague the image, for it is indeed prettier and better than he. Batak magicians can conjure the demon of disease out of the patient's body into an image made out of a banana tree with a human face and wrapped in magic herbs. The image is then hurriedly removed and thrown away or buried beyond the boundaries of the village. Sometimes the image, dressed as a man or a woman according to the sex of the patient, is deposited at a crossroad or other thoroughfare in the hope that some passer-by seeing it, may start and cry out, Ah, so-and-so is dead. For such an exclamation is supposed to delude the demon of disease into a belief that he has accomplished his fell purpose, so he takes himself off and leaves the sufferer to get well. The Maidarat, a Sakai tribe of the Malay Peninsula, attribute all kinds of diseases to the agency of spirits, which they call the Nayani. Fortunately, however, the magician can induce these maleficent beings to come out of the sick person 
and to take up their abode in rude figures of grass which are hung up outside the houses in little bell-shaped shrines decorated with peeled sticks during an epidemic of smallpox the you negroes will sometimes clear a space outside of the town where they erect a number of low mounds and cover them with as many little clay figures as there are people in the place pots of food and water are also set out for the refreshment of the spirit of smallpox who it is hoped will take the clay figures and spare the living folk and to make assurance doubly sure the road into the town is barricaded against him with these examples before us we may surmise that the woolen effigies which at the festival of the compitalia might be seen hanging at the doors of all the houses in ancient rome were not substitutes for human victims who had formerly been sacrificed at this season but rather vicarious offerings presented to the mother or grandmother of ghosts in the hope that on her rounds through the city she would accept or mistake the effigies for the inmates of the house and so spare the living for another year it is possible that the puppets made of rushes which in the month of may the pontiffs and vestal virgins annually threw into the tiber from the old sublician bridge at rome had originally the same significance that is that they may have been designed to purge the city from demoniac influence by diverting the attention of the demons from human beings to the puppets and then toppling the whole uncanny crew neck and crop into the river which would soon sweep them far out to sea in precisely the same way the natives of old calabar used periodically to rid their town of the devils which infested it by luring the unwary demons into a number of lamentable scarecrows which they afterwards flung into the river the interpretation of the roman custom is supported to some extent by the evidence of plutarch who speaks of the ceremony as the greatest of purifications end of chapter 50